Welcome to the Divorce Recovery Podcast. My name is India Kern. My intention is to encourage and guide you through the valley of divorce. It doesn't matter what stage you are in because we all need a little help navigating the road from married to divorced. I've been there and I know how it is. So sit tight, listen up, and enjoy the podcast. Today I have Scott Silverman as my guest. Scott is a crisis coach, a family navigator, a motivational speaker, and an author of Tell Me No, I Dare You. Thank you so much for being here. India, thanks so much for having me. Well, today, the intention of, of this episode is to better understand addiction from the perspective of a loved one, and then we're going to move to the perspective of a person who may be struggling with drugs or, or alcohol. So as you know, there's so many forms of addiction and more than just alcohol so and drugs, but today we're going to focus on those two, and that will be plenty to cover. So we might even make this more than one episode. I read that 21 million Americans struggle with some form of addiction, so most everyone in the U.S. is affected by, in some capacity, right? And, you know, this hits really close to my heart because I was raised in addiction. I was born into it. My father was a severe alcoholic. It eventually destroyed my parents' marriage. We had, you know, all kinds of problems with kids. Even some of my siblings even went that route, too, now are recovering. So it definitely touched my family, and um, it caused also me to seek dysfunctional relationships, and I had to then learn what healthy even looked like, which I think is pretty common, right? It's, it's, it's actually classic if you think about it. Yeah. And, you know, when you have a family that has it's predisposed with addiction, uh, unfortunately that uh, maladaptive behavior impacts everyone. Right, right. And then it's just like the wrecking ball of relationships. Correct. And so, um, especially marriages, and since this is the Divorce Recovery Podcast, that's where I want to go with this. So addiction is one of the greatest challenges, as we just mentioned, and it's also the most, most frustrating because usually one person looks at the addicted spouse and says, why can't you stop? Look at what you're doing to our marriage. And, um, and I want you to shed some light on what happens in addiction for everyone involved. So I gathered some commonly asked questions, and I thought I would just ask, jump right in, and you help us, you know, unpack this. That'd be great. And, okay. you know, and, and I hope that your listeners will follow up with you once they've heard this and ask you even more specific questions on what they could do to help navigate what next steps look like. Because the disease of addiction, and I call it a disease, is a disease of denial. Mm-hmm and the inability to feel feelings. So when you talk to somebody who has the problem, they're going to tell you, A, I don't have a problem, mm-hmm. and B, if you weren't in the room breathing, I wouldn't have to drink. Right. So it's always somebody <laughs> else's fault. The, you know, that the cloudy, is so true. <laughs> the cloudy skies, the sunny, you know, the right. sunny afternoons, the dolphins yeah. off the coast, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. When someone has this issue, they believe it's some other person's fault, meaning not theirs. Oh, yeah. My mother was the reason my father drank, exactly. according to my dad. Right. In, the, in the room breathing, it's a classic relationship, you know, anecdote that you hear constantly. You know, I, I used to joke with my wife sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're in the room breathing, I get irritated. <laughs> and it's not her that's irritating me. It's just me having a really bad day or I'm not processing my feelings and I'm reacting to it. And then if I were to still be drinking, you know, I would be reacting, reacting to it differently within an hour after being, you know, self-medicating. Right. right. So 
Let's just jump right into the questions. Go. How do you know when a loved one is addicted to a substance? Yeah, that, that's a, that's, first of all, it's a great question. How do you know if someone's addicted? You know, it, th- I call this a disease. Mm-hmm. And according to science, 15% of the country has an active addiction issue that will erupt this next year, which is an even higher number than you read earlier. Because the data that we have out there is three to four years old. And most mm-hmm. people aren't going to raise their hand and go, hey, right. I have an alcohol problem. Hey, I suffer from addiction from opioids. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to get you know, accurate data in a timely way. And the way the government does it, it takes years to gather. And the reports are usually a couple of years behind. One of the key pieces that you know families ask me all the time is how do I know if they're telling the truth? I'm going to kind of work backwards to your question. Okay. And my answer is this. If, some, if you think somebody has a problem, then you pretty much know or have an idea or think they do, the question then begs is, how do I know when they're telling me the truth? My answer is simple. If their lips are moving, they're lying. My mother used to say that all the time. And if their <laughs> lips are moving, they're lying. And now, that doesn't make them a bad person. Mm-hmm. But most people are not going to be candid, forthright, and transparent and come forward and tell you that they have a problem. Mm-hmm. They're going to be self-medicating or they're going to be taking something into their body for their mind and soul, if you will, mm-hmm. to help numb whatever's going on. I call it a form of anesthesia. Mm-hmm. So when someone's behavior is such that they're either out of control or you know it's inappropriate or they're screaming you know, at the wind for no reason whatsoever, there's probably an issue going on. For example, if somebody had a broken arm, it's crystal clear they have a broken arm or broken leg, right. you know, or someone poked them in the eye or their eyes watering, it's clear it's easy, you go to ER, you mm-hmm. get it fixed. But with substance abuse and with addiction, you know, when you're self-medicating, it's kind of opaque. But you, most people can see this behavioral change. And they may not be sure what it is, but mm-hmm. they know something's not right. And that's really when they have to reach out and talk to experts about what's going on and try to get an idea. Right. And that leads me to the next question. How do you know if it's not just abusing the substance rather than being addicted to the substance? There's a, there's a fine line between abuse and addiction. And it, the, the interesting thing is you can simply go online and just Google, you know, how do I know if I have an addiction mm-hmm. problem? How do I know if I'm drinking too much? And there are questionnaires online. Right. And I think the average is about 21 questions. And when you ask those questions and then you answer those questions, you'll get a pretty good idea. Because you're right, there is there are people who abuse it. There are mm-hmm. people who party a lot. Right. And there are people who have an addiction. And I was a partier abuser and, and was an addict, but it mm-hmm. didn't really evolve until over time for me. And that's what happened to me personally. And people don't normally have their first drink and then have a problem, but there are people who have their first drink and have a blackout right? and they're predisposed. So, okay. Thank you. That was great information. So why can't they stop using when they can see the damage is causing, like say their marriage? Right. You know, and again, a great question, you know, why, why, why would somebody pick something up or put something in their body that they know would hurt them. Mm-hmm. And that's a real interestingly organic issue. For example, if somebody knows that by drinking or by smoking marijuana or by taking medication, they're impaired, but yet they get behind the wheel of a vehicle. That's probably the clearest example mm-hmm. we read in the newspaper almost daily now. Mm-hmm. So why would someone do that? Well, if you and I were talking about diabetes mm-hmm. and I had diabetes and I was eating inappropriately, and I was getting sick, and I was diagnosed, and I was told to take you know, my blood sugar right. levels throughout the day, and I was required to put insulin in my body, and I wasn't doing it, I got sicker, clearly the outcome would be crystal clear. But mm-hmm. when it comes to substance abuse, and it comes to self-medicating, 
most people don't want to admit they have the problem. Mm-hmm. Again, disease of denial. Mm-hmm. And secondly, if they do admit that they have the problem, then they've got the stigma they have to deal with right. with the family. Right. Okay. So I I like this question a lot, what I'm about to ask you. What's the difference? Okay, what's enabling first? And then what's the difference between enabling and supporting? Great. Well, enabling is, example, you know, when I used to drink, we'd go out socially, and then I'd wake up Sunday morning, and my wife would give me a list of people and phone numbers, and i go, what's this? She goes, you need to call these people <laughs> oh, and apologize. No. <laughs> that was a form of enabling. Right, yeah. And, you know, as far as uh, the other part of that was supporting. Is oh, yeah, what's the difference uh, between supporting and enabling? Well, so, and the thing is this. When somebody's got a problem and you're supporting it, you know, in some ways, for example, you're, you're saying, oh, I, I want to let them have a beer or two at dinner. Mm-hmm because I want them to feel better, because mm-hmm. I don't want to have to live with the behavior and the attitude and the personality that comes if they don't drink, mm-hmm. that's a high level of enabling. Right. And supporting is trying to find ways to you know, to give that individual alternatives. The difficulty with that is, if they have this disease, in their mind, mm-hmm. they don't, they're not making a conscious choice. I'd rather get drunk and black out and have an argument with my spouse then I would take this, you know, other way right. or path to mm-hmm. feel better. It's really, you're not giving a, it's not a conscious choice. For example, I hear it all the time. If somebody just was at a bar, didn't pick up a drink, would they have a drinking problem? Well, it's different for someone who's predisposed and has the right. ad- addiction and they have the disease. Right. They don't really have a choice. In their mind, they don't have a problem, so they're drinking. Yeah, I mean, it's classic, look at my family. Five of us, two of us end up <coughs> being... Uh, having a problem, correct. Uh, so that's that. It definitely trickles down the family tree. A compulsive, obsessive, addictive behavior. And by the way, there are good things like sports, mm-hmm. nutrition, right. you know, fashion, right. you know, l- way we take care of our own bodies, mind and soul. You know, and we actually do better with our cars than we do our own bodies when you think about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so a lot of people, you know, you Al-Anon or Twelve Step is pushed for the loved one, right? Mm-hmm. So a classic question is why do I need help if she or he has the problem my spouse the the and there's all kinds of different um, you know anonymous programs out mm-hmm. there today or people who can go see experts who aren't associated with the recovery mm-hmm. program but what happens is when somebody has a here's an interesting uh, statistic if 15 percent as I said earlier of the population has a problem mm-hmm. according to science if you are an active individual who's active in your disease and you're acting out, you're self-medicating, the science shows that you will impact seven people negatively every day. Mm-hmm. So if oh. 15% yeah, of a problem, a lot of seven, and seven out of 10 are going to be, ne- that's anywhere from a family member, right. you know, but leaving the house to going to work, to being on the road, to being impaired, to interacting with friends, family throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So when an individual has the problem, they're going to uh, act out the way they act out. And the person who's living with them mm-hmm. or who is close to them, who is watching this happen, is being impacted by that behavior. Mm-hmm. So what they also need to do, if they're sitting there and they're watching it and they're exposed to it, it's like PTSD. Mm-hmm. Science is showing that if an individual comes back from the, the, a military environment, has PTSD, and it goes untreated, mm-hmm. the whole family can have it spill over to them, and they can suffer from PTSD. So what happens with this disease is the significant other, the children, are all reaping, kind of like a water fountain. Mm -hmm. It just trickles down on them, and they can't avoid it because it's in their environment. And if they don't get support Mm -hmm. or treatment, they're basically becoming a victim to that behavior. And if that goes untreated, 
you know, pressure bust pipes, they're right. going to have a negative impact. Yeah. It's going to have a negative impact on them as well. Yeah, I always say, uh, or I heard someone say, a therapist once, we're waiting for the bus that takes us back home. And that's so true. I did it. Um, so I'm a product of that. Right. And, and the, I think the key behind, you know, these, these are great questions is also a heightened awareness mm-hmm. that if it's going on, because if you don't believe you, you know, have a splinter, you're not going to try to take it out. Right. But there's something that's irritating you. You don't know what it is. That's where you have to seek help and talk to experts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the first step I should take if I think my loved one does have a problem? Well, a couple things. You can quickly go online, do some research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say start with an expert. You know, maybe talk to your primary caregiver, talk to your faith-based leader, talk to mm-hmm. a friend, talk to someone who's been through it. You know, call India, talk with <laughs> her. You know, call me, right. talk with Scott. There are people out there, thousands in this community that are clinicians, they're therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, who all have expertise with behavioral health. And mm-hmm. there's, And if you're not sure what to do, Talk to someone who's been there and done that if you can. And if mm-hmm. you can't identify that person, talk to someone you trust. Because the odds are in today's world, everybody knows somebody yeah. who's got an issue. And most people have a pretty good idea of maybe what direction to point you in. Then it's up to you to take that action. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about treatment really quick. So are there effective treatments for drug and alcohol addiction? And, you know, we talk about relapse as part of being part of recovery. Can you touch on there there a are bit. a variety of modalities for treatment. You know, it's unfortunate in this industry, it's a $40 billion industry that the, the structured treatment deliverable uh, components. And according to science, if all you do is a 28-day inpatient program and mm-hmm. no follow-up, there's a 95% chance you're going to relapse. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's an interesting journey that one needs to take. For example, back to diabetes. You get diagnosed, you get assessed, you're going to have to make lifestyle changes for the rest of your life. Right. But only a little bit only every day and only for the rest of your life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there are mechanisms for that. So when it comes to recovery, depending upon the level of need that an individual has, there's there's detox, there's medically supervised detox, Mm -hmm. there's inpatient residential programs, there's outpatient programs, and there's also long-term support. You know, confidential recovery is what I run. We're Mm -hmm. an outpatient program, non-residential, where working people, professionals can come 10 hours a week, work Mm -hmm. with a clinician, but that's only 10 hours a week. They still have to work on their own recovery. They still have to the social model has gotten a lot of great you know uh, accolades if you will mm-hmm. and that works a lot there's a lot of 12-step anonymous right. programs out mm-hmm. there there's refuge there's you know there's smart recovery there's life ring there's all kinds of mm-hmm. modalities out there mm-hmm. so the excuse you know that i remember hearing you know oh you know that's a religious program or mm-hmm. you know i don't want to go in there and talk about god right you know well right. then don't but don't use that as a it's mechanism to not participate mm-hmm. in something that's going to help you feel better. Right. Nobody who's ever been a triathlete has done it all on their own. Mm-hmm. Nobody who's ever tried to find the best way to build the better body, mind, soul, and gut has done it on their own. Right. You know, and when you want to learn how to write or you want to learn how to be an artist or you want to learn how to you know, get into a profession, it's never done alone. It's done in a classroom environment. You have right. a facilitator. There's an advocate there. There's mentors. There's all kinds of ways to get help today. That's why... I don't like to even hear from somebody when they say, well, you know, I couldn't find the right appropriate help. Okay, well, then let's talk about how we help you navigate to get to what that is. And sometimes, you know, you meet a therapist, you don't like them. Okay, doesn't mean you give up on therapy for the rest of your life. Right. I heard a quote today that is perfect for now. And it it was by the um, writer Roots. And he said, when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know he had help. 
And I love that because you need help, right? And it's okay to be humble and ask for help when you need it because this is a time when you're going to need it. So now, By the way, yes, I need help mm-hmm. are three of the hardest words in the English language. Mm-hmm. And if you can overcome that and mm-hmm. you can say, I need help, everything and anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I'd like to switch to the one that may be questioning whether they have a problem with a substance. So some of the questions that they ask. So I only drink on the weekends. Can a person be addicted to a substance even though you don't use or drink every day? Yes. There's actually a term. It's called weekend alcoholic. Okay. And how do I know that? Because I was one. Okay. I People had asked me, said, you know, maybe you have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. You know, what would happen if you stopped? And I thought, well, okay. So I challenged myself. And what I ended up doing is when I slowed down my alcohol, mm-hmm. I increased my cocaine. <laughs> so, right. you know, it was substitution. So the thing is this. If you're generally asking yourself that question the odds are pretty high you may have an issue. Now, you may not have an addiction, but you Mm -hmm. may have an issue. Right. So, for example, if you're drinking on weekends abusively. Now, what's Mm -hmm. abusively mean? Three glasses of wine, nine glasses of wine, a pint of whiskey, a Mm -hmm. quart of whiskey. You know, are you taking edibles and Mm -hmm. Xanax and alcohol? So the question really begs what you're really doing. And by the way, Lying, cheating, and manipulating are the three best tools of someone who's suffering from an addiction. So when you're talking to somebody who says, oh, I only had four glasses of wine, mm-hmm. well, that's wonderful. You know, what I do, though, in my business of being a behavioral health consultant, I ask the question, well, when t- what time did you have that wine? Mm-hmm. Oh, I had it between six and nine. Well, that's great. So let me ask you this. From the time you woke up in the morning, you know, what time did you wake up? Oh, about 11. Wow, why so late? Well, I had a little bit of a hangover from the night before. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. so when you woke up before you had your first cup of coffee, what did you do between 11 and 6 when you had that first glass of wine? Well, I had a couple of vodkas because I couldn't get through the day mm-hmm. without it. So now we're talking a couple of vodkas, four glasses of wine. And so when you went to sleep that night, did you take anything to help you? Well, yeah, I have to take something to help me sleep. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, right. when you're asking direct questions, that, by the way, I do not suggest a family member do this. Right, right, of do course. Do not interview your spouse and mm-hmm. go through that. Have them call mm-hmm. me, let me do it for you, because that's right. what I'm good at, and I'm happy to ask those questions, and I'm, looking, I'm not looking to judge. I'm looking to get informed so I can reflect and give advice and make suggestions. Right. So when you're trying to manage your consumption, like, okay, I'm only going to have X amount, Mm -hmm. would that be a pretty good sign that you may have a problem? Well, think about what your question is, managing consumption. I would say yes, that if one is trying to manage one's consumption, the odds are they're probably consuming more than they should be Mm -hmm. because if you need management tools to try to adjust your intake or monitor your intake or try to split out, you know, your intake over a period of time, Mm -hmm. your level of consciousness around that kind of self-manipulation usually is a clear sign something's going on. For example, when I went to a professional and I said, I'm drinking a lot because I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. Why are you depressed? Well, you know, I... I feel like I'm not moving forward fast enough in my life. You know, I work in a family business. I'm not good enough for them. I never seem to meet the minimum threshold criteria. You know, I'm having an issue in a relationship I'm in. And so it sounds like if I could help you with the depression, you may not need to drink. Mm -hmm. So that was my motivation to get help. And, And the drinking and the depression 
they contaminated each other. Right. So and that's, I use that as an excuse. Right. And that's actually a good point because I've heard people say that drugs and alcohol quiet the noise of the brain. Well, sure. So, anesthesia. Right. And exactly. underneath addiction lies the inability to tolerate negative feelings. What's your take on that? Well, you know, negative feeling, positive feeling. The reason I say that is because I know I've talked to enough addicts and family members over the years, you know, been sober a little over 35, so probably thousands of people. And what I hear is sometimes uh, success can be a barrier. Mm-hmm. Failure is familiar. You know, oh, that's like a nice sweater. I can wear that, you know. Mm-hmm. Failure is familiar, and success sometimes can be a big challenge as well. So I think it works both ways. What it is is the inability to process feelings, I think, in a normal way. Mm-hmm. kind of goes into this one portal, gets stuck there and spins around, and while it's spinning around, your head hurts, your gut hurts, and the only way to stop the noise sometimes is to take something in that puts the noise and, and you know, subdues it, quiets it down, or shuts right. it off. right. And another thing that, you know, a lot of controversy, I know, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I just want to talk about marijuana and how um, it's addictive qualities. Um, is it addictive? You, you call it addictive quality? Well, I, 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 I'm asking for <laughs> I like the, the people. Yeah, people yeah. yeah, sorry. I'm asking for the people That's because okay. I see it on, I see uh, the argument on Facebook all the time. And of course, I believe it is because I've seen the effects of it. I've seen loved ones smoke and numb out. And yes, in my book, addictive. But then you see, you know, it's being legalized and there's this, uh, it's almost, I don't know. I mean, alcohol also is legal and it's addictive. So tell me your thoughts. Tell me a little bit about marijuana. Well, marijuana, you know, when I was smoking marijuana, it didn't have the potency it does today. It's like mm-hmm. 20 times more potent than it was 15 years ago, and mm-hmm. that's an issue. And the, the reason I say that is the THC content in marijuana today is so strong. Mm-hmm. It's so strong. So what happens is people are smoking it, but the impact it's having on them it, and the damage that it's doing, especially with young people, and right. the science already shows us that, you know, in the teens up to 25, if you're smoking marijuana on a daily basis, your brain stops developing, period. It just stops developing. Mm. So if you start smoking marijuana today, in today's world, you know, 2020, mm-hmm. and you smoke it for 10 years, by the time you get to 25, your your mental capacity hasn't really changed a whole lot from mm-hmm. the age of 15. Plus, right. once you start taking in mood-altering substances, you stop growing emotionally. Right. Right. So if you're 35 years old and you've been drinking and smoking it through your teens and 20s, you've got the maturation rate of a 15. Yes. And people will go, oh, start to hear this. And they'll go, oh, you know, that's right. My significant other still acts like an idiot whenever they mm-hmm. put that stuff in their mm-hmm. body. So marijuana is much stronger than ever has been before. We also have edibles today. And what's happening with edibles is people take them in and they go, you know, this, this isn't really effective. And they, then they take another one. And then they get high and they leave them around the table. And then their their pets and their uh, young children yeah. been exposed. I mean, yeah. terms like pediatric morbidity, I didn't even know what that was four years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. Kids are picking this stuff up. And as we legalize it across the country, I mean, look, there are there are other parts of the world that have legalized everything, and they found a way to manage the addiction issue. Mm-hmm. The problem is, in our country right now, what we're doing is we're trying to find ways to just say, well, let's just make it legal, and then that way the, the outside manufacturers can't, impregnate our society right. with fentanyl and you know cocaine but the problem is if you don't provide All opportunity <laughs> for recovery and for <laughs> yeah. treatment and support it doesn't matter because right. what happens is our society today we're taking in more 
mood-altering substances. We're seeing more overdoses than we've ever seen before. And marijuana does impair people. And when you're driving impaired, mm-hmm. you can have the same issue, you know, as somebody who's had a, you know, a fifth of alcohol. Right. And it is becoming legal. And the feds are talking about making it legal nationally right now. Mm-hmm. And my only concern is, let's take. If you're going to do it, I know in California, we'll take half the money, the profits the state will make, put it into education, prevention, and treatment. Yeah. I mean, I just talked to a guy today. Yeah. Two weeks he's been trying to get into tre- treatment, and he can't because he's on Social Security insurance. He oh, goes, wow. I can't, I, I'm right in the middle. He goes, I, yeah. I can't go to, to the, this place because I have an income, and I can't go to that place because I don't have enough income. And he says, this whole thing's about, we were, he was arguing with me. He says, I'm so upset about it. It's about money. I said, no, there are facilities you can go to. You just have to wait, be patient, and do some research. But mm-hmm. hang in there. And I said, call me later, and we'll help you navigate some more. And that's part of the problem. Yeah. Here we are in 2020. People don't know where to go get help. Right. That is insane. And when you think about our little, I don't want to minimize it, the flu epidemic. Uh-huh. You know, we've lost some kids, and we've right. lost some adults, and it's horrible. But at the end of the day... You know, we're losing over plus 200 people a day just over opioids in this country. Yeah. 200 a day. That doesn't include alcohol or methamphetamine or other prescription medication. Yeah. What about the synthetic drugs? Can you speak about that? Like, what, what is that? How, are they... You're talking about counterfeit medication? Well, just this... Don't they have synthetic marijuana and things like that? Or? Well, there are different things out there. Yeah, there's ketamine, you know, but that's a, a tool for helping. Uh, but if you abuse it, you know, and now what's happening is this counterfeit medication. For example, people are buying... Uh, Xanax, uh-huh. you know, and what they're doing is they're, it, it, they think that's what it is, but actually what it is, it's manufactured in a way where they put fentanyl in it. Yes. Counterfeit medication, mm-hmm. they call it. So, mm-hmm. you know, and kids are going to parties today where they each bring something in their pocket and they put it in a bowl. Mm-hmm. And at a certain time, the green light goes on and everybody goes to the bowl and grabs something. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't believe in telling a kid you shouldn't do something because generally what that usually means is go have some fun later. Mm-hmm. That's what it translates in their head or, or thank you, or, I'm going to hide from you more now. Mm-hmm. But they grab these things, they have no idea idea what they're putting in their body and right. with fentanyl coming in from china you know and with cocaine coming in from south america and with methamphetamine coming in from mexico and then you and i haven't even talked about the dark web i mean you can go on the dark web today with bitcoin mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and have no trace of your transactions oh, that's true. and you can purchase everything we've talked about today and more mm-hmm. have it delivered to your house through usps and no one's gonna know oh wow you know another thing i saw yesterday on NPR was um, an interview, and it was it was with two addicts recovering, and one it was heroin because they turned to heroin because they couldn't get prescription medication. Right. So they turned to that, right? Which is classic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you can't get what you need, and um, there's an app now that that shares where the bad batches are. Now you would think people would run from them. Mm-mm. Mm. The hardcore drug drug addicts go to the bad batch areas to get it because they're like, oh, that's really good stuff. That's unbelievable. Now, this this uh, podcast was all about um, the epidemic, the drug epidemic, mostly opioids, um, but also Narcan, the Lazarus drug, um, because it you know revives a person. Right. So um, I couldn't believe that people would actually go for the bad batches. Though. Let that me, was let me just... take what you heard a step further, which is okay. even more scary. Uh, there was a guy here in San Diego that was busted about a year ago, and I heard this from somebody in law enforcement, and. He was asked in the interview, you know, after the arrest, why would you sell a product that kills your customer? Mm -hmm. Why would you even distribute something that could actually kill your consumer? Mm -hmm. And the answer was, whenever the news picks up an overdose of fentanyl Uh or heroin or carfentanyl Uh or, you know, counterfeit medication, he goes, my business spikes. 
my business spikes, quote wow. unquote. So, and I look at that as my competition. The person who's manufacturing or distributing or selling or marketing illicit substances with absolutely no care in the world because they don't have to worry about quality control. Mm -hmm. Their product's not sold in a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. The DEA doesn't monitor what they're making. They do all this underground and you know after hours, and it's done in a way with, with, the, uh, with the idea in mind that when their consumer gets connected to it, addicted, they're going to build business. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are methamphetamine, just real quick. Ten years ago, a pound of methamphetamine in San Diego was around $11,000. Today, it's 1100 Wow. Wow. So it's 10 times less than it was 10 years ago. But see, what's even more scary is methamphetamine, which mostly comes from super labs in Mexico. Mm -hmm. If you were to go out today and purchase methamphetamine, mm -hmm. 10 times less money, right. the purity 10 years ago was about 8 or 9%. Mm -hmm. The purity today is 90% plus. Oh so what's happening mm -hmm. is they're able to make it cheaper, make Stronger. it more potent, mm -hmm. and it's more addictive. Wow. So, and you know, you don't even hear about crack anymore because between methamphetamine and fentanyl and heroin, right. and by the way, a lot of people that are smoking heroin, it's cut with fentanyl. A lot of people that are smoking methamphetamine, it's cut with fentanyl. We had a couple overdoses here in San Diego where fentanyl was actually in marijuana. That's, yeah, I heard that. That's so scary. To your point earlier, yeah. why would someone take something knowing that it could kill them? Because the person, the drug seeker at the moment, mm -hmm. if it's not peer pressure, but it's self-indulgence, right. they're not going to believe it's their turn. They're not going to believe this could happen to them. Right. Right. And a lot of times they're like, well, we know the person and he has only good stuff. Well, right. yeah, he gets it from a third world country <laughs> with Bitcoin. Is he the guinea home. pig? Is he testing it out? There because is no quality control yeah, when it comes yeah. to illicit drugs. They right. And who are they going to be responsible to? And why would they even take the time to do it? So you don't know if you're getting something that's 5% pure or 50% pure or 80% pure and what the dose looks like. Right. Right. All right, Scott, um, that's a lot of information. It's all very, very valuable. But I want the listeners to know if they have a problem, if they think a loved one has a problem, what should they do right now? Well, I want you to, I'd like to encourage them to call me. Let's start mm -hmm. there. Make okay. a phone call. I mean, I'm a crisis coach and a family navigator, you know, and I charge a fee for my time. But if you call me, I'll give you 10 minutes free because I'm on India's show. And I'm happy to do that because I want you to know that if you don't make a phone call, mm -hmm. We're going to be going to a funeral. Mm -hmm. So they can simply call me at area code 619-993-2738. That's 619-993-2738. Or go to my website, yourcrisiscoach.com. Or Google me, Scott H. Silverman. I'm on the net. You can find me anywhere on LinkedIn or Facebook or, you know, Instagram. I'm there. And text me if you're concerned. And, you know, star 67 if you want to call me with an, you know, unknown number. It doesn't matter. But if you don't ask for help, I don't know how you expect to see change start. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get into action, you know, and if you know India, Call her. She'll give you yeah. my contact info. And if there's anything that, anything that I can do, I'm on this big campaign in 2020. I call it funeral avoidance. I don't <laughs> want to go to any more Good. funerals. I don't want to hear families say, I wish I knew about you three months ago. Right. I try to get out there. I try to make myself available. And if I can't get back to you within the hour, I certainly will within 24. So, again, 619-993-2738. All right. Thank you so much, Scott. Today was, I, I was find, find it fascinating. And like I said, it hits close to home. If anyone is interested in navigating a marriage that might be suffering from some 
substance abuse, please contact me as well. You can contact me at connect at indiacurn.com or go to my website, indiacurn.com. So, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in, and have a beautiful day.